Survey Committee. That's for everyone in Ocean Survey, too. Well, it's good to be with you all, the brave, the few, and the humbled, because you're all wanting to get home or to wherever you need to be. Get some sleep. Sleep is good. Maybe I'll get some too soon. But we have to get through chapel first. But we need to think this morning about the glories of Christ. And that's what I want us to do. And in light of that, shall we pray? Lord, we are immensely needy this morning. Not in a selfish sense, but in a sense to have our minds renewed and clarified, to have our hearts renewed and strengthened, to be driven to the glory and majesty that is exclusively and uniquely Christ's. And so may this morning be a time where already, before even we speak, we are desperate to know the Lord Jesus Christ as he is. Prepare us to be convicted. Prepare us to be changed. And may our eyes be opened to behold such spectacular dominion and splendor that our entire being would desire to proclaim him and him alone. May you cultivate that in us now. May the distractions that so easily pull and push us away from you and your son melt. And may we behold him as our hero. In your name we pray. Amen. This year, as you know, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And one of the most central and important truths of the Reformation is the idea of Christ alone. The Reformers remind us of what the Bible says. We are Christians, and we need to think about the original context of that in Acts 11. In Acts 11, the believers gather together in a city preaching and teaching for an entire year, (coughs) and in doing so, the city calls them Christians. The city calls them Christians. What this reminds us is that you cannot just say you're a Christian. You cannot just name and claim it. You have to earn the right to be called Christians. People should call you a Christian because you're all about Christ, not just because you say it. And we demonstrate that centrality of Christ by virtue of our boldness for him, that there is no hesitation or reservation about him, and even more, that he is our boast. He is everything to us. It is clear, and it must be obvious, that we are all about Christ. Now, In those days, back in the Reformation, that entire mentality of Christ alone was threatened by Rome and its doctrines. Popes, works, saints, relics, and ceremonies all shared the same platform or even took the place of Christ and his work alone. However, 500 years later, we still face the same struggles. Yes, we're not like Rome, but we can diminish Christ in so many different ways. And one somewhat humorous way relates to one of the most asked questions in my office. And you say, whoa, what what do students ask the most in your office? What theological mystery? Or is it some Greek and Hebrew word or some deep secret of the Bible? Is it, will I get married? Well, actually, that's the number one question that's asked in my office. (coughs) And my usual response is, if you're asking me this question, then the answer is no. But the number two asked question in my office is actually this. If you had a superpower, what would it be? If you had a superpower, what would it be? And you're asking me the question, well, what does that have to do with Christ alone? Christ is all. It's in our conception of a hero. You see, the reason we ask what superpower would you like is because that would be what is cool and what makes you cool, what makes a hero a hero, our conception of hero. You see, our conception of hero has bearing on our understanding of Christ alone. And let's just say initially this, we sometimes have a bizarre idea of what a hero is. We have a bizarre idea of what a hero is. 
And this can be illustrated in a very fascinating conversation I had with a student, and here's the substance of that conversation. What makes a hero a hero? Why are you asking about these superpowers? Oh, Dr. Chow, we got to start at the beginning. Okay. Well, it first starts with, like, people like this. This guy, he gets bit by a spider, and he gets magnificent powers. Wait, hold on, hold on. Yeah, what's your question? Well, here's my question. Is, is this real? Did this actually happen? Because if we're talking about what makes a hero a hero, and, and you're talking about this guy getting bit by a spider, if it didn't happen, are you saying that the bare minimum you have, the bare minimum standard you have for a hero is that you don't even have to exist? You don't have to even be real. Well, when you put it that way, well, I'm not putting it anyway. I, I'm just asking questions. Keep going. Well, anyway, Dr. Chow, he gets superpowers, and, and he's so powerful, so mighty, that he has to fight a supervillain from space. Wait, hold a second. So out of all the real problems of the world, like famine, injustice, <laughs> sin, and all of its consequences, you have to make up a problem for this guy to solve? He's that incompetent? He can't actually deal with real things? Are you saying your bare minimum threshold for a hero now is not only someone who doesn't exist, but actually solves nothing? <laughs> well, when you put it that way, I'm not putting, I'm just asking questions, man. You're doing a great job. You keep going. Well, anyway, there's this like, epic struggle battle. It's, it's so amazing. And, and, and like this one guy punches a big worm and, and it just like blows up and, and it levels half of Manhattan. Okay, okay, hold on. Um, these guys have superpowers, right? Yeah. But there's this huge struggle and battle, and, and there's like a big laborious fight. How is their superpower either super or powerful? Well, when you put it that way, I'm not putting it anyway. Why don't, why don't you just finish it off? Okay, well, Dr. Chow, it's just so hilarious because at the end, the city's all torn to pieces and they're eating falafel in the shop. It's just, it's just so cool. Wait, 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 wait. So these guys are exhausted. And the city, they haven't actually finished solving the problem because, like, people's lives are falling apart as the city is destroyed, right? Yeah. So you're saying that a hero is too tired to finish the job? So in other words, you're saying that your standard of hero is you don't have to exist, you don't have to accomplish anything, you're neither super nor powerful, and you can't actually do what you're supposed to do because you get tired. Well, well, Dr. Chow, I just want to fly. That's my superpower. What's yours? <coughs> I guess I like to be more godly or persevere or something. <laughs> Now, some of you might be wondering, wait, wait, does this mean that you don't think we should watch any movies or be entertained by any video games or comic books? No, 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 no. I get it. I get it. Yeah, it's fun to watch these things. It, it's engaging. It can be entertaining. There can be conversations about it. You can even have fellowship together over it. I get it. Don't misunderstand me, but there is a subtle danger here. There is a subtle danger, and that is this. We may have a very low view of hero. So low, in fact, that when a real hero walks right before us, what should be done and how we should react, we don't even do. In fact, we find the fake heroes more entertaining and more valuable. They're just simply more engaging. And let's not just pick on the comic book, movie, video game nerds. There are lots of other ways we do this. And responding to the question, what's the solution for this world? How and what should we take our stand? Who should be our cause? I think we say, oh yeah, Sunday school answer, Christ. But then we also add on to that. We say, well, we need to take action for this and take a stand for that. And, and we need to petition for this and appeal for that and manipulate this and advance that cause. And at bare minimum, that's confusing. Because you're talking about Christ and all these other things. They kind of share a platform, if you think about it. And we're not even talking about those things to point to Christ we're just talking about Christ and all of those other actions. And at bare minimum, that's confusing because it looks like you just have multiple causes and Christ is one of them. One of them. But it could actually be a lot more sinister because we have to ask the question, 
if you really believe that Christ is the hero, if he's done something so amazing, so spectacular, so comprehensive and extensive, so satisfying, then why are you talking about all these other things unless you really don't believe he's that heroic? And that's where we have a problem. You see, our understanding of hero directly relates. It has bearing on Christ alone. And my job this morning is to redeem our understanding of hero. It is to redeem our understanding of hero and to drive us to the reality thereby Christ alone. We have one hero. His name is Jesus, and we proclaim him because there is no one else we will boast about. There is no other hero. That's the goal of what we're going to do today. Turn with me to Revelation 4. Turn with me to Revelation 4. <coughs> now, as we are talking about Revelation 4, we need to know its point, its purpose. We need to know how it functions in the book of Revelation. And that's going to demand some discussion of the context some discussion of the context. So as you're turning to Revelation 4, that's what I'd like to do. As you know, Revelation is about eschatology. For some of you here, you might be thinking, oh, why do, we, why do we have to talk about eschatology? I mean, what value is there? After all, it's so controversial and it can be even confusing. How is this relevant? Well, we could put it this way. What do you tell someone who lacks passion for Christ? What does someone under pressure or persecution, who is under doctrinal or moral decline, who is dead inside, who is fruitless or fake, what must they know? What do they need to hear? What do they need to understand? According to John and God himself, they need to know and understand the end. That's what they believed. You see, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 communicate that to us. These people who lose their first love, or need to endure, they need to know the end. Because John and God himself understand, if you want to excite people with a greater view of God, then you need to look at the greatest revelation of God that happens at the end. And if you want people to face up to the reality and the consequences of their sin, then you need them to face the wrath and accountability that happens at the end. End. And if you are persecuted or oppressed, burdened, weary, troubled, faint-hearted, then you need to know that God has not forgotten you. He will fight for you, and he will exact vengeance for you, fulfill all his promises he made to you, and to make all things right for you at the end. And in that way, Revelation provides one word, hope. Hope. Here's another word that it provides. Resolution. Resolution. And it really does provide resolution to this world's problems. It provides resolution to the problems of creation, to this cosmos, to the environment. After all, there are these trumpet judgments, and if you trace them out, they actually reverse the days of creation. God is decreating the earth in order to recreate it, to make all things new to make all things pristine, back to the way they are. This happens in Revelation chapter 20. Everything in this world is resolved in this environment. It's the issues of justice. We are very concerned about the issues of justice, and in Revelation 6 and in Revelation 16, we read that God exacts vengeance for the persecuted saints, for the wrongs done. He will have justice, and the great white, white throne demonstrates his final justice. Justice will be served. In the end, every issue will be resolved, even our desire for justice. Even the problem of evil is resolved in the end. The problem of evil. You see, God does restore creation back to what it is in Genesis 1 and 2, but the question is, if you have Genesis 1 and 2, 1, 2, 3. Maybe, maybe Genesis 3 will happen again. Maybe the fall will happen again. Maybe God cannot really stop evil. So at the end of the millennial kingdom, you know this, God releases Satan, and Satan deceives the nations, just like Eve was what? Deceived. But this time, in Revelation 20, the world does not fall. The world does not fall. 
fire comes down from heaven and the rebellion stops, the deception stops. Why? Because the final Adam sits on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate and definitive vindication of God. And he proves, my father is right. He has done no wrong. Problem of evil solved forever. Revelation provides all the answers you need. It provides full, real, total resolution. And relative to the discussion that we've been having, this is what you have to understand. You see, we've been saying that sometimes we say, oh yeah, we, we, yeah the Christ is important. We preach Christ, but, but we're also going to talk about take a stand for this and advance that cause and, and appeal for that. They all share a platform. No, they don't. No, they don't. Revelation, Christianity, has all the answers. It has all the resolutions. There is nothing more effective, more eternal, and more satisfying than the answers found in Scripture. We have it all. We have it all. Don't let anyone take that away from us. We have it all. We have full and complete resolution. Christ shares a platform with no one. Christ shares a platform with no one. And along that line, we can take this whole idea of total resolution one step further. And in fact, this is where Revelation 4 fits in. This is where Revelation 4 fits in. You see, what God does is he takes that total, comprehensive, extensive resolution, and he gives it to one. He gives it to one, his son. All of that focuses and hones in on God's son. And you know that. There is no one who can open the scroll but who? Christ. He is the one who initiates all of this resolution. It belongs to him. And so John's goal in Revelation 4 is to show that all resolution exclusively belongs in the Son. In this way, Revelation 4 and 5 is the proclamation of heaven that this one is alone worthy. And we are now going to give him what he deserves, his reward to finally do what no one else can do and solve everything. Revelation 4 and 5 is heaven's welcome of their hero. Revelation 4 and 5 is heaven's welcome of their hero. And with that, the point of Revelation 4 and 5 is the point that we are having in this message. We've been talking about Christ alone and that, how that ties in with hero. And in Revelation 4, you have heaven's declaration of Christ as hero, and that proves that it is Christ alone. John's purpose of Revelation 4 is that you would fix your eyes on this moment. In Revelation chapter 3, at the very end, at the end of the letter to the Laodiceans, it says this, that you need to focus on this time that if you overcome, you will reign with Christ as he reigns with his Father seated on the throne. You need to understand, this is the moment. Revelation 4 and 5, this is the moment you are waiting for. This is the moment you are waiting for. Not because it's just a neat moment, it's a neat occasion, it's a neat happening. No, because this moment reveals something about Christ. John is revealing and unveiling this moment to oppress upon your soul so that you have a conviction in your heart there is no Savior, there is no hero but Christ. He alone, Christ alone. This moment should capture us and form a conviction in us, and it does. It does. You say, how do you know that it does? Because every other hymn and song have, that we sing, have you noticed? Doesn't it come from Revelation 4 and 5? Holy, 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 worthy is the Lord, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. It comes from Revelation 4 and 5. This moment captivates us as it should, as God designed it to do. And so what we need to do now is just to unpack why that is the case. And in doing so, we will see Christ alone. Christ is all. He is the only hero. And I want to give us three reasons from Revelation chapter 4 why that is the case. Three reasons why Christ is the only hero from Revelation chapter 4. And we're just going to go through parts of Revelation 4, kind of survey different pieces. There's so much more to be said, but we will only do some components of that chapter. But three reasons why Christ is the only hero. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. 
Christ is the only hero because he alone accomplishes redemption. He alone accomplishes redemption. Revelation 4 by itself isn't the place where Jesus actually receives the scroll. That happens in the next chapter. Revelation 4, rather, sets the scene. It sets the stage for that event. It tells you why Christ is the only one worthy to receive the scroll and also what is entailed and what will ensue when he does so. In that way, everything is organized and orchestrated by God in this scene to set the stage properly. It is intentional and it is precise. Put it this way, Everything has a backstory. Everything has a backstory in Revelation 4. And if you know the backstory, then you know how this magnifies Christ. And so, with this in mind, let's read Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. Here is John. He is taken up in spirit, and he says, Behold, there's a throne. And I saw one seated on the throne. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. And what would you say next? High end, lifted up. Yes, indeed. He's saying, that's like Isaiah 6. Yeah, because it is Isaiah 6. You say, are you sure? Well, answer key, verse 8. What are the angels singing in chapter 4, verse 8? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Just like in Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw part of what John sees as a whole. And Isaiah will give us the backstory. Of why this is here. Isaiah will give us the backstory. So turn with me to Isaiah 6. You can keep your finger in Revelation 4, of course, but turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 6. And I think we are familiar with Isaiah 6, of course, but we need to hear what Isaiah fully says, the full story Isaiah says of what is happening in his vision, because he unpacks that throughout the book. And the best way I've found to kind of explain this to people is actually to go backwards. I know that's kind of weird expositional preaching to go backwards, but we're going to do it anyways. Three, two, one. Verses three, then two, then one. We're just going to walk backwards through what the angels sing and say all the way to the one seated on the throne in verse one. So with that in mind, let's talk about the last thing these seraphim say. They say the earth is filled with God's what? Glory. The earth is filled with with God's glory. God's glory fills the earth. And immediately when you hear that, you should know this is not talking about a time in Isaiah's day or even a time in our day. Because when God's glory fills anything, like the tabernacle or the temple, that's not just some mystical feeling, existential quality. That is something physical and tangible. You see the cloud of glory and light fill physically, those structures. In fact, to the point where the priest cannot even stand inside those buildings. They have to move out. So let's put it this way. How do you know God's glory doesn't fill the earth in this sense? Because you're not an astronaut living in space because God's glory has pushed you out. This is not talking about something now. This is talking about something way different. And in fact, Isaiah clues you in on this because in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah clearly says, you know what the earth is filled with right now? No, what, Isaiah? Idols. That's what he says. The earth is filled with idols. And that's a lot more realistic, right? It doesn't take much to see that. Just open your eyes or close them. It really doesn't matter. It's all over the place. It's in your head. It's in your heart. It's everywhere. They're everywhere. So it's obvious. And God needs to take action. God must take action about that. And so he's going to judge the world. In Isaiah 24, it says this. His judgment in verse 1 of 24, he will empty the world like a bottle. Why do you need to empty the world? Because it's filled with what? Idols. And you empty it out so that you fill it with God's glory. And for that very reason, in Isaiah 24, the very last verse, it says this. The sun, moon, and stars, they will be ashamed of their light, and they will give no more light. There will only be one light, and that is the light of the glory of God. Why? Because he shares his glory with no other. He alone will have all the glory. And when this happens, the world changes. Isaiah 60 says this, that the kings of the world will walk in his light. They will walk in his light, and there will be real peace. You see these nations that fought against Israel, you know what they're going to do? They will bring them home. They will carry Israelites on their shoulders to bring them home. They will do whatever it takes, because for the first time, people really love each other. And there will be peace. There will be real peace. 
And it's not just peace, it's revival. Because all these nations, they will bring their treasures to God in salute and in honor of him, there will be world revival. And on top of that, the entire environment will change. Do you remember the phrase, the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the bear will eat grass, and the child will be able to play with a viper? Why? Listen to this in Isaiah 11, 9. They will do no harm on my holy mountain, because the knowledge of the Lord, now listen to this, will fill the earth as water over the seas. Do you hear that? Fill the earth. Just like God's glory, what? Fills the earth. This is the moment, not just of some kind of nice special feeling. When God's glory fills the earth, the entire universe changes. Put it this way. This is real resolution. World peace. Everyone reoriented and reprioritized and revalued to God. This is world peace when even the animals are at peace with each other and with man. This is real resolution. So what are the angels proclaiming here? What are they so amazed about? They are amazed that God could transform a world filled with idols to that which is filled with his glory and that he could change a world so depraved and so dark and make it totally new based on who he is. They are astonished at that miracle, at that redemption, and they are proclaiming God wins. He won. He overcame everything so that his glory would fill the earth. That is what they are proclaiming at this moment. But that's not all they say. They also say this, holy, holy, holy. They also say holy, holy, holy. Now we know that God is holy. He is distinctly other than us. He is morally perfect. We understand that. And we also understand that God is holy because he judges Because anything that is imperfect, anything that is sinful, will exact the omnipotent wrath of God. We know that. And we see that in Isaiah. God unleashes his condemnation against people and nations and countries and levels them and destroys them in his wrath. That's holiness. But listen to this. There's another thing that we might miss. In Isaiah 4, it says that Israel, even though they were judged, even though they were so sinful... This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. They will be called holy. Did you hear that? They will be called holy. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. It says that God will have peace on his holy mountain. Did you hear that? Even a mountain becomes holy. And again, in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 12, it says this, that the world will call God's people holy people unto God the Lord. They're not just celebrating these angels, God's holiness, that he is holy, that's true. They're not just celebrating that God's so holy that he judges. That's true too. The reason these angels are singing holy, holy, holy is because God is so holy, he even makes the unholy holy. He even makes the unholy holy. He's a saving God. You didn't even have to get out of Isaiah 6 to figure that out, by the way. When Isaiah sees this vision, what does he say? I am a man of unclean lips. What does the angel do? Puts the coal on his mouth and says, your iniquity is atoned for. That's making the unholy what? Holy. That's what these angels are singing about. Why are these angels proclaiming this? Why are they so astonished? Because God has done the impossible. He has done the impossible. He has made that which is unholy and deserves judgment. He has made them holy. This God has accomplished so great a salvation, so great a redemption. That's why he's so amazing. Now, we need to ask the question, well, who accomplished it? And you probably are saying, well, obviously it's God. Chapter 6, verse 1, look at the guy seated on a throne. It's God. Yes, good Sunday school answer. We could be a little bit more precise, though. You see, God is seated on the throne. He is high and lifted up, and for that very reason, he does not tolerate anything else high and lifted up at all. He alone will be high and lifted up. So he lowers and humbles those with high and lifted up hearts or hands or eyes. No one can be high and lifted up. But then in Isaiah 52, 13, 
This is what he says about his servant. My servant will succeed. He will be high and lifted up. The very same phrase in Isaiah 6. And we know the context of Isaiah 52 and 53. It is the suffering of the Messiah. This is what Isaiah saw. He didn't just see God the Father. He saw God the Son. Finally receiving his reward because he died for you and me. And he rose. That's what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw the moment, not just a generic moment, not just the moment at present, the eschatological moment at the culmination of history where the angels are celebrating and proclaiming the victory, not just of God the Father, but the victory of God in his Son, in the suffering servant. And they are saying, this is the one. This is the one who made the unholy holy because of his death. This is the one who made possible that God's glory would fill the earth. This is the one who has accomplished so great a redemption. This is our hero. That is what Isaiah understood. And now you understand in Revelation 4 why these angels are there. They are there to testify that yes, we have seen, we understand this world that you live in, human beings, this world that you live in, believer, is a world wrecked by depravity and sin. The consequences are devastating. There is immense wrath, the very omnipotent wrath of God. It is a very dark place. But there was a hero, and he went into the dark to die, to bear the wrath of God in his own body on the tree so that the unholy would be made holy and that finally the glory of God would fill the earth and there would be real redemption. And who is that hero? The Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. That is what they are celebrating here. He is the only Redeemer in this life you will see so much injustice. You will see evil, and you will see terror. You will see wrong, and let's just put it simply this way, you will see sin. In all of its ugliness, you need to know this, you have a hero. And he dealt with that once and for all. And he is the only one who can have any resolution of it, Never let anyone share a platform with him. He is our hero, and we proclaim him. Well, it is not just the fact that we have redemption. That's not just the only reason why this hero is a hero. Here's the second reason. Here's the second reason. He alone fulfills relationship. He alone fulfills relationship. This moves us into a slightly different category. We are not just dealing now with sin and its effects, making a wrong world right that we had in the first point. This is dealing with a different category altogether, God's love. God's love. God's relationship. This hero takes care of that, and that brings us to a different part of Revelation 4. Look at Revelation 4, verse 6b with me. It talks about in the midst of the throne and around the throne, you have these four living creatures filled with eyes. And they have different faces of different animals, even one of man, and they even have wings. And again, they are covered with eyes. And if you say, wow, these creatures, they kind of sound familiar. I think I read about them in OT survey too. Like, I think it's Ezekiel. Yes, it's Ezekiel. These are the same creatures. It's the same thing. Ezekiel, like Isaiah, saw part of what John sees in whole. And so if you want to understand these creatures, you've got to go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, you have to survey through the entire book to know why they are here in Revelation 4. And that's what I want to do now. You see these creatures that we learn and first see in Ezekiel, we learn from that book that they symbolize, they exhibit and express the nature of God and his agenda. The nature of God and his agenda they're covered with eyes. We already read about that in Revelation 4 because they express that God is present. God is present. He sees, and he not only sees, but he responds, and he provides. That is why 
There are all these eyes. They demonstrate God's presence. And specifically, they show the nature of God's presence. In Ezekiel chapter 1, but you can also see it in Revelation chapter 4, the number four is emphasized. They have four faces. They have four legs. There are four of them. And in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 1, it says they have four wings. Four, 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 four. Why? Four directions. Forward, backward, left and right, north, south, east, west. Take your pick. Either one is just great. Four directions, all of them showing that God's presence goes everywhere. He is omnipresent. But it goes one step further than this. You see, this even explains why there is a wheel within a wheel. Do you remember that? A, a wheel within a wheel. That actually creates a ball. And we know balls. You don't have to put a steering wheel on a soccer ball to turn it. It just goes where you want it to go. Cars don't do that. That's why we have steering wheels, and you should use them. God's presence never has to change direction because he goes where he pleases and his presence is unrestricted, unhindered, unlimited. No one can stop him. And for an Israelite who is so far away at this time in Ezekiel chapter 1, they're very far away from home. Hundreds of hundreds and thousands of miles from home. And they might wonder, is God far away from me? This vision tells them, Nothing separates you from God. Nothing. He goes where he pleases, and he pleases to be right next to you, so he will be, period. And for us, sometimes we feel a little bit far from God. You need to understand, this is God's nature. Well, that nature sets up an agenda. That nature sets up an agenda. And we have these animals, these living creatures. And they have different faces of different animals. And one is a face of a man. And on top of them, it's very interesting, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 25, it says that on top of them is a firmament. Where have we heard the term firmament before? In Genesis chapter 1. This chariot throne, these angels with that firmament, they are all a picture of the world. They are a picture of creation. And there God then establishes his agenda. Yes, he is omnipresent, and therefore he desires his glory, as Isaiah puts it, to fill the earth. He wants himself to commune with all of the cosmos. He wants it to be that he is our God and we are his people. And thereby we experience the fullness of relationship, the fullness of joy, love, holiness, communion, peace, rest, contentment, and worship. That is what God desires. That is his agenda. It's everything you want and more. Put it this way. In the end, this is what God wants. That you would see him face to face. And you would be so satisfied in him, you would want nothing else. You would want nothing else. And you say, well, that sounds so good. That sounds great. Especially since sometimes I feel lonely and I feel hurt. I want that. What's the problem? Here's the problem. You don't want that. I don't want that. Israel certainly doesn't want that. No one who is in their depraved state wants a relationship with God. They hate God. They despise him. And so in Ezekiel, Ezekiel records how Israel does everything they can to hate their God. For example, Israel brings in all these abominations into the temple. And to understand that, let's make an analogy here. We understand that the temple is God's house. It is called the house of God. So Israel bringing in their abominations would be akin to this. You committing adultery or fornication in your bedroom in front of your spouse to their face. That's not just an act of unfaithfulness. That's an act of the most intense hatred. That is an act of spite and of rejection. That's what Israel did to God. By the way, that's the nature of our sin. When you prize something over God, that is exactly what you have done to him. Something to think about. Well, God can take a hint. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out, yeah, maybe you don't like me. And so he leaves. He departs, and that's not a happy moment. Because when he departs in the wake of his 
exile, so to speak. There is an exile, abandonment, loneliness, humiliation, and shame that all of that brings. And before you get too empathetic with Israel, you need to understand this. This is self-inflicted. They did it to themselves. They deserve it. They earned that. But God doesn't leave it there. In fact, technically, we're only in Ezekiel chapter 10 at this point out of 48. So there's a lot more to go. And we should be thankful because the story doesn't end there. You see, God did leave to, <coughs> to abandon them. Not ultimately, though. He left to return. He left to return. That's what it says in Ezekiel 40 through 48. He went out not to abandon them, but to save them, to redeem them, to bring them home. And in light of this, we see and in the process of this that God says in Ezekiel 34, I saw there was no one who would love Israel. There was no one who would protect or provide for them. There was no one who would care for them. They had no shepherd, so I became their good shepherd. I love them when no one else would. And in the process of doing that, this is what God says, the new covenant occurs. God gives them a new heart. <coughs> and you say, oh yeah, that's good. A, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. You know, sometimes I just have an insensitive heart. Uh, I'm not very, uh, thank you. I'm not very sensitive to God and things of this nature. That's not what a heart of stone means, folks. If you have a heart of stone, you're dead. It's that simple. Ten times out of ten times, if we rip your heart out and put in a rock, you die. <laughs> when you have a heart of stone, you're dead. But here is the beauty of it. God's love is so powerful, it goes beyond the grave. It goes beyond the grave. God's love is so mighty, it actually creates life. So that for the first time, people would actually love God back. That's how far God's love goes. And in fact, it goes more than that. It goes deep. Because in Ezekiel 36, we learn that God puts his spirit in our heart, inside of us. God does not just want a relationship which is distant. He doesn't just even want a relationship in a group setting. He wants a personal relationship, one where he knows you from the inside out. That's how intimate, that's how immediate, that's how close he wants to be. And it is this kind of fellowship and this kind of communion, this kind of relationship that drives God's glory to fill the earth as we see in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Why? Because God's glory will not fill the earth in just a superficial external way. He will fill the earth from the inside out. Never take for granted a relationship with God that is personal. God didn't have to do that for you. He didn't. He could have forgiven your sins and thrown you out on the street, and he would have still been nice. But he didn't. His love went beyond the grave for you. And his love went deeper than anyone could ever do. And we could put it that way. No one would do what God did. After such an insult, who would go out and pursue these people and love them in this way? No one. Who could do what God did? No one. Whose love can really go beyond the grave? Even now, we say, till death do you part. God says, that's not true of me, though. That's not true of me. Death shall not do us part. I will go beyond the grave to save my people and to get them to love me. No one can do that. So if you do something no one would do, and you do something no one could do, what does that make you? A hero. It makes you a hero. And I think now you understand why these angels in Ezekiel are in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, don't you? Because they're saying, what Ezekiel told you, we saw all that. We saw all that. We saw that there is a world that has cut itself for so long off from God, their creator, their lover, and they have been immersed in their humiliation, loneliness, and shame. But there was a hero. There was the good shepherd. And he would not let them 
go. And he, after being despised of them, went out to seek them and to do what no one would do and to do what no one could do and to express a love of them to, that goes far beyond anything they could imagine and deeper than they could ever understand. He did that for them. And we are celebrating the accomplishment of so great a love now as he will finish it off, as he brings his people home forever. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ our shepherd. There may be times when you feel unloved. There may be times when you feel like you're barely going to make it and you're distant from God. Far away, you're hurting. You have a hero. You have a hero who never lets you go, who went beyond the grave to love you. And he's the only one who will bring you home because he is the good shepherd. And he will bring you home to eternal glory where you finally see God face to face and he wipes every tear from your eye. And at that moment, you will really understand. He's not just the hero, he's our hero. He's our hero. Well, there is one more reason. There is one more reason for the fact that God is the only hero and that is this, he alone reigns. He alone reigns. And this brings us to the end of Revelation chapter 4. In verse 11 it says this, Worthy is the Lord to receive glory, honor, and power. Listen to what it says in Daniel 7, 14. He receives glory, honor, and power. You say, whoa, that sounds like the same thing. Because it is. It is the same thing. Daniel saw in part what John sees in whole. And so if you want to understand the significance of this statement, we go to Daniel chapter 7. We go to Daniel chapter 7. And let me summarize it for you quickly here like this. In Daniel 7 verse 2, in fact, throughout the entire chapter of Daniel, here's how it works. You have this wind in the sky that is hovering over the seas. And you see all these animals come out. And then you see a man that rules over them all. Where do you have sky and sea and then a bunch of animals and then a man come all in that order? Genesis chapter 1. The end goes back to the beginning. The end goes back to the beginning. And here's the question of Daniel 7. Who has the authority? Not just authority over one nation for a given period of time. Who has authority over all nations, over the entire cosmos for all time? Who will reign over all space, over all time, for all time? Who has that authority? And what you see in Daniel 7, 3 through 8 is everybody wants it. Four major nations, four major kingdoms arise to vie for that position. They do whatever it takes to get it, but they never get it. And you guys know this. You guys remember the stories in Daniel. People want glory, honor, and power. They want all the nations to every tribe and tongue to worship them, but they never do it. One guy eats grass, another guy gets his kingdom taken away. Even those who want Daniel to go into the lion's den, it doesn't happen. And so here's how history works. There is one place for one hero. Everyone tries to be that hero. Every political figure attempts to get into that place, but it is reserved for one. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 14, we see who that one is. It is the one like the Son of Man. It is Christ. He alone receives that. He alone receives that because everything is subjected to him. All these other nations are subdued and even killed for him. And he receives also in 714 what no one else receives, glory, honor, and power. They wanted it. He has it. They wanted the worship of every nation, tribe, and tongue. He has it. They don't. That makes him the king. And then this helps us to understand what is going on in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. There are angels there, and they are saying, worthy is the one to receive glory, honor, and power. We have been waiting for the one to show up. We have been waiting for the one to show up all this time. And yeah, there have been many who tried, but there can only be one who receives it. And this is the one who will receive it, the one who has fulfilled redemption and relationship, the one who fulfills history and theology, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Brothers and sisters, in our political culture, we need to make it crystal clear who is our king. We need to make it crystal clear who is our king. It should be no doubt that we have one king, who is the only king and the ultimate king for all time? The Lord Jesus Christ. That must be crystal clear. And we make, must make sure along that line that nothing ever receives glory from us. Because the angels know there can be only one. 
and there will be only one. And therefore, for us, there must be only one. That is what this moment declares. Christ alone. That's by God's design. And with that, this is what you learn. This isn't just the moment that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the angels, or we are looking for. This is the moment God is waiting for. When the Son receives that scroll in Revelation chapter 5, do you know what happens? In verse 9 it says this, The angels then sing a what? A new song. Do you know how powerful that is? For the first time since they were created, these angels changed their tune. These angels changed their tune. That's how powerful this moment is. Because God didn't just want to declare that his son is the king and the only hero. He wanted everyone to recognize it. And so that's exactly what happened. This is the moment God has been waiting for. To show off his son. To show his son as the only hero. Brothers and sisters, many things try to encroach for our attention for our witness, for our affections. There are causes, agendas, peoples, pressures. There are concerns. And many of them are good. But if they don't point to Christ, they are cheap substitutes for the real cause, for the real hero. Remember Jesus Christ. He is the only one who accomplishes the redemption and resolution of this world. He is the only one who fulfills relationships, and he is the only one who reigns forever. That's what makes him a real hero. That's what the reformers understood, Christ alone. That's what Scripture and Paul proclaim. We proclaim him. So may we be those that champion the only true hero. May we preach Christ. May he be our boast. And may we look forward to that moment. When finally, heaven and earth recognize what God always intended us to know, that his son is the only hero. Shall we pray? Lord, we are so, so thankful for your son. Convict us where we have lost focus on him, where his glory has not saturated our minds and hearts, where we are not captured by his splendor and magnificence. May we be those that truly live up to the name Christian because we are all about your son. In your name.